case you're wondering while you're turning there and waiting for the kids to come out, I, I didn't ask to have a banner saying happy birthday to me put up. That was done without my knowledge or permission. Um, I can't fire my wife or my mom or my sister, though, so um, we're going to have to endure the banner. Um, and I'm actually thankful that they chosen to do that. And uh, so you know, I am now old enough to be the president of the United States. <laughs> and, and that has always been the goal. Be, be very afraid. The, um, all right, turn to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. I'm surprised the media isn't here for this day. They were just here a couple weeks ago and they failed to come the day that I'm legally able to be president. All right, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse, let me tell you one other thing before I read. Do you know... Pat Robertson's uh, ministry called me this week and wants me to come on. That's all I need, right? To go on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson. <laughs> I didn't even call him back. All right. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize our need for you as we open your word this morning. We pray that we would understand who you are and how it is that you worked through Abram, who we now know as Abraham. Lord, how you made a promise to him and you kept it. And how you were a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Lord, how you extend grace to us. How you sovereignly elect us. And how you love us in a way that is unfathomable for us. Might we trust in you and your promises today. Give us the ability to understand them and to love them and to rejoice in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but um, people often make promises that I don't trust. I don't know if you're one of these people who trusts promises people make. I'm generally not. And, and I have two good reasons for not trusting promises, I think. And, and here they are. Because I know that people aren't able to keep their promises necessarily for two, th- two reasons. One, either A, they're not physically able to keep their promises. I promise that I'll do thus and such for you in six months. Well, I don't know that that person will even be breathing in six months. No idea how many days God's appointed for them. So while they may have every intention and be willing in every way to keep that promise, I don't know if they'll be able to. Two, I don't know if they'll be willing to. While they may intend to when they make the promise, keep the promise, we're sinners. And sometimes we make promises to please other people. And sometimes we make promises for the right reasons. And then we end up breaking them in our sin, right? I've seen both of these actually take place in my life. Um, when I was a child, and I'll give you two, two examples. When I was a child, I was six years old. Um, this was 
December of 1979, my dad gave me a fishing pole. And he gave me a fishing pole at Christmas, and he promised that on my seventh birthday, he was going to take me fishing. So I had this fishing pole that I got Christmas that year, and I was very excited to go fishing with him that summer. My birthday was June 29th, so today. So six months later, I was going to get to go on this fishing trip. And he promised to keep it, and I believe had every intention of keeping it. On June 20th, of 1980, nine days before my seventh birthday, I woke up to my mom crying um, and lots of police officers in my house because my father had been killed in the line of duty. And he couldn't take me fishing on my birthday. He didn't have the human attributes necessary to ensure or guarantee that he would keep his promise. He intended to. But he couldn't. That's why if you make a promise, maybe you should say, God willing, this is what I'll do. He didn't have the attributes necessary. Now, there was another promise that was made to me. Um, Not too many years after that, there was a man um, who my mom was seeing named Robert. And he made a promise to take me fishing. And he didn't show. He didn't come. So he promised to do it again, and he didn't show again. Right? He wasn't willing to keep his promise. He lacked the character of being a truth teller. So there are two reasons why promises often aren't kept. Sometimes they're not kept because someone lacks the attribute, or we lack the attribute of the ability to guarantee we'll be alive to keep it or able for some other reason. And sometimes they're not kept because we lack the character necessary to be able to, or to be willing to do it. You guys understand that? I don't tell those stories. who feel sorry for me. I don't feel sorry for me. I learned great lessons from those things. But I tell those stories because I want you to understand what makes a promise worth holding on to or trusting is the character or the attributes of the person making the promise. You hear that? What makes a promise worth trusting are the character and attributes of the person making the promise. Now, we break promises sometimes because we're unwilling or unable to keep them. But God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He is neither unwilling nor is he unable to keep his promises. In fact, just the opposite. God is supremely willing and supremely able to keep his promises. He is a God who cannot lie. So when he says to you, I will do this, it is impossible for him to do otherwise. And he is a God who cannot fail. So when he says to you, I am powerful enough to do this and I will do it, he cannot fail. God not only 
cannot fail, but he will not fail. Unlike us, God's promises are secure because of the person who's making the promise. They're supremely secure. And throughout Scripture, those promises come um, in the form of what we call covenants. You guys have heard of a covenant? A covenant's an agreement between two or more persons. My wife and I have a covenant. We, on December 17th, 1994, I hope all you men remember your date, we got married. It was the greatest day of my life, right? Other than being born again, but if you want me to be totally honest, I rejoiced more in the marriage day, um, if I'm going to be totally honest. (laughs) Not going to (laughs) lie. Michael just got married not too long ago. He knows what I'm talking about, right? uh, (laughs) Recent enough. But greatest day of my life. We stood there at that altar and made a covenant with God and with one another. That we would stay together until death do us part. Not until it became inconvenient. Not until we didn't really care for each other too much anymore. Not as long as our love would last. But as long as we had breath in us. We made this covenant. And the Lord has been gracious to us in helping us to keep it. Right? He's been gracious to us in helping us to keep it. That's a covenant. God makes covenants with us. That is a bilateral covenant. We together made that covenant. There are covenants God makes that are unilateral. God makes them. The covenant with Adam. He created Adam, put him in the garden and said what? Be fruitful and multiply. I'm like, no problem. Right? Have dominion over all the earth. Adam's like, all right. Don't eat from that fruit. Oh, I don't know about that, Lord. The fruit's looking pretty good. If you eat of it, Genesis 2.17, you will surely die. Here's a covenant. I promise you, Adam, that I will sustain your life and care for you and provide everything you ever need. Just don't eat that fruit. And the day that you do, I promise you there will be a consequence. You will die. Adam didn't create himself and he didn't come looking for this covenant. God made it with him. Adam violated it. God made a covenant with Noah. Right? God made a covenant with Noah. But before that, he made a covenant with them, right? He made another promise before that one, which is we don't often see as a promise or a covenant, but Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent that the woman's seed will raise up and will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And it's the first promise of the gospel that we get in Scripture. So the promise covenant in a sense that God has made. Well, um, Adam broke the first covenant and then God makes the second one. Genesis 3.15 or the promise, the proto-evangelion they call it. That was then attempted to be violated by Cain because the woman's seed has to come, right? So Cain's born and Abel's born and Cain kills Abel. So Abel can't be the seed, and neither can Cain. If you've got one son who's dead and another one who's a murderer, neither one of them are the Messiah. Right? Guaranteed. So now what? God brings Seth through Eve. The godly line of Seth. 
The line of Cain continues. God continues to be gracious to Cain in spite of that. But then he brings this son, Seth. And through Seth um, comes Noah. What's interesting is between the time Seth is born and the time that Noah is born, all of mankind becomes wicked. They grow in their wickedness to the point where it gets so bad that God's got to flood the whole earth. And so he makes a promise to Noah that, that I'll be gracious to you. I'll protect you. I'll put you on the ark. I'll bring you through. I'm making a covenant with you, Noah. And Noah gets off the ark and God reconfirms that covenant and says, not only is that covenant with you, it's with the whole earth. I will never again flood the earth. I promise. And to mark that promise, I will put a sign in the sky and it's a rainbow. And that is how I will sign that covenant or promise I've made to you. So Noah's family then starts to produce children. He has, well, at, at this point, he'd already had them, but he has Shem and Ham and Japheth. Um, and there's some sin that happens. I mean, Noah gets off the ark and just runs right into sin, gets drunk and naked. And his kids have to deal with one of his kids wants to shame him for it. The other kid, you know, Shem wants to go cover him up. And so then you start to watch the son, the righteous son, Shem. You start to go down his family lines. So you've seen it go from Adam and Eve Cain and Abel, dead, Seth comes around, then goes from Seth all the way through to Noah, and then Noah to Shem. Shem doesn't sin in this situation, although he's a sinner. And it starts to go through Shem, and you watch the family tree in Genesis go down through Shem, and you see everybody become wicked again and build a tower. Right? To show how exalted they think they are. Now, I want you to think about this. No matter who the child of promise, in a sense, was, right? What continued to happen? Sin. And what continued to happen? No matter how much they sinned, certainly God brought judgment. But no matter how much they sinned, God continued to be gracious to keep his promises. They kept trying to violate the covenants again and again and again. And God Kept being gracious. What kills me about this passage in Genesis, and kills me, I mean, in a positive way, right? What gets me excited about this passage of Genesis is you've read about the Tower of Babel. Everybody is in sin. They've built a tower to exalt their own name. They've exalted the city of man over the city of God. And so God comes down from heaven, kind of humiliating them. I love the language that the author uses. He comes down from heaven, showing how weak and small their tower really is. And then he scatters them into multiple nations and languages abroad on the earth. And you see judgment. You're like, wow, look at the judgment that just came. Where's the grace? And then you read Genesis 12. Understand the context now. God made man, he blessed him. And he sinned. And he promised to deal with the sin. And he brought more children, he blessed them. And they sinned. And he promised to deal with it. More children, bless them, they sin. Till finally they get to the pinnacle of it all. They exalt themselves by building a giant city with a giant tower to show how great they are. After all this mercy of God. After seeing God's judgment for their sin, they still keep going down this track. Now he's scattered them all over the world for their sin. He's judged them. And he comes to this guy, Abram. 
a son, in a sense, if you go down the family tree from Shem. He comes to Abram, who's living among pagan peoples, and look what he says. Abram's not looking for God. Abram's looking to get some decent land somewhere. Look what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you. Now listen to this. Understand the judgment that just came on Babel in which God spread them across the earth and in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear that? In the context of Genesis 11 and man's desire to exalt himself in sin and to show himself to be glorious and to reject all that God has done for him. In that context, God comes to a man named Abram and says to him, I want to bless all of you. Think of that. I promise to bless you all. I want to bless every nation of the earth. I want to be gracious to all of you. Think of that. My goal today is to show you that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And I want to show you two implications from that. I want to show you, as we do it, I want to show you that One, the story of Abraham, and two, the primary themes we see in God's promise to Abraham and how they apply to us. That's it. God's promise to Abraham and two applications to us. So, So let's look at the promise that God makes to Abraham, the story of the promise. While Abraham's living among pagan peoples, if you look up at verse 27 of chapter 11, you'll see a bit of the story. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, which, by the way, means his name means exalted father. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in, the Ur, in Ur of the Chaldeans. They live in Ur of the Chaldeans among pagans. Most likely, Abram was himself a pagan when God comes to him. Did you hear that? Abram wasn't pursuing God. God was pursuing him. Goes on, verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai's daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, another land filled with pagans. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram. That's where the story picks up. In other words, mankind has fallen into sin once again, exalting himself with the tower. God scatters them into judgment. One of those men among the mass of humanity, God comes to and says, I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. 
Not a man who's seeking the Lord. Not a man who probably is even worshiping monotheistically or the idea of one God. He's probably a man who's caught up in paganism, in sin, seeing the judgment of God. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to make you great. This man is the first Jew, right? He wasn't a Jew prior to this. He was just some Gentile. He's the first. And God starts the story here. It's interesting, as John Stott says of this promise that God makes to Abraham, of this promise God makes to Abraham, John Stott says the following. It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Right here, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament is an outworking of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Of this promise God has made. So let's look at the promise and see how it shows us God building his kingdom. Because that's what we've been talking about this whole series, right? The whole series is about how God is building his kingdom. Which God's kingdom is defined as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Started with Adam and Eve. God's people in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing. It continues forward now to Abram. So how do we see God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing developing here in Genesis 12? Look with me at verse 1 to see God's people. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, which I'll get back to that, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In other words, I have chosen you, Abram. Among all the people of the world, I've chosen you. You are my people. And from you, I will bless the nations. And I will take you to my place. Go, he says, to the land that I will show you. The promised land. I will take you to my place. And you will be under my rule And blessing, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. God furthers that promise in Genesis 15 and 17. I want to look at Genesis 17 though for the furthering of it. So just turn there quickly. Look at how he furthers his promise with him. When Abram, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Why Abraham? Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. But I'm going to change your name too. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Let me stop there. God starts this covenant with Abram or Abraham. Now he's reconfirming a covenant he's already made and he starts it and he tells him, look, I'll be God to you and to your offspring after you. You're my people. My covenant is with you. I'm making a promise to you to be my people. Do the other people on the earth belong to God? Sure they do. He created them all. He owns them all. But they're not his people in this sense. They have not been saved, set apart, called out to be his people in the sense that they will be his people, blessed by him in his place. Not only says that, he says in verse 8, I'll give you land. I'll give you the land of your sojournings in Canaan. And you know what Abraham understood that meant? That meant the heavenly city. We get so caught up about the land of Israel. So focused on that. Hebrews 11 clearly tells us that when Abraham got to the promised land, he settled down and built his castle and knew he arrived. It's not what it says, is it? He knew he was in the promised land. Finally, the, the promise had come true. He's now in the land. All God has to do is keep us here. It's not what's said, is it? It says he went around dwelling in tents like a foreigner or sojourner. Why? He arrived at the land God promised to send him to physically. And yet he knew that he had not arrived at the land that God was ultimately promising to him. And so it says he went there living in tents like a sojourner or foreigner or an alien because he looked forward in faith to that city whose builder and founder is God, the heavenly city. That's what Abraham knew ultimately was the promise of God. The ultimate promise of God is Abraham, not only will you be my people in my place under my rule and blessing, but that's an eternal gift. That just isn't talking about here, now. That's forever. And that everlasting possession will happen in the perfect city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth that I create, that we read about in Revelation. Abraham was looking forward to that. God's rule and blessing in verse 4 and 5, he says, I'm going to make you a multitude of nations, the father of them. I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. And then it's interesting, look at the rule, the law he gives him. Because he does give Abraham, Abraham a law. He says in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. 
you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. And then he goes on, he gives them a sign of the covenant. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. In the foreskin, you shall be circumcised. Every child on the eighth day. So God has attached a sign to his covenants. The covenant he makes with Noah, he attaches a sign to it. What is it? The rainbow. The covenant now God makes with Abraham, he attaches a sign to it. What is it? Circumcision of the male. Attaches a sign to it. Why? What does that sign point to? That sign points to the circumcision of the heart. Or regeneration or new birth. Coming from spiritual death to spiritual life and being made clean. And then when God makes the new covenant with Christ or in Christ with the church, what becomes the sign? Baptism. Because baptism is now the picture of being cleansed, of being of dying, going, being buried with Christ and being resurrected to new life with Christ. It is itself a picture of circumcision. It's meant to pick up that same picture. Circumcision, regeneration, cleansing of the heart, the new life. Baptism, pictures regeneration, the cleansing of the heart, the new life. That's now the sign of the new covenant. And God signs all these promises he makes. So God makes a promise to Abraham and then he keeps it through his family line. Here's how it's kept in Genesis because I'm not going to read the whole book of Genesis to you today. So here's how it's kept. First, we see the promise through Abraham's family going from Abraham to who? Isaac. Abraham has two children. He has Isaac and he has Ishmael. Ishmael he has through his servant Hagar. He can't hold off for God to keep his promise to give him a son through Sarah. Sarah doesn't want to wait for that to happen. Neither one of them really trusts the promise of God. And so Sarah says, take Hagar and go consummate with her. Have a child. And so they do, and they have Ishmael. And then later on, when they're older, they have Isaac, Abraham, and Sarah do. And God says the child of the promise is Isaac. And so he starts to work through Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons. Names are Jacob and Esau. Esau, they're twins. Esau was born first. Jacob came out second. And Jacob becomes the child of the promise. And Jacob is a real jerk. Really, what I like about Jacob is he gives me great hope that salvation is, is possible for me, right? And then next you have the 12 tribes that come from Jacob. Jacob's name is then changed to Israel, and the 12 tribes are sons. The 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, the primary son that gets specifically chosen out of there is, a, is the son Judah who through him will come the royal line of David, and through David will come Christ. So that's kind of how Genesis unfolds. It shows God keeping these promises through the family. If we understand the importance of the covenant or promise God made with Abraham in order to build his kingdom, if we understand that, then we understand why Jesus is called the son of Abraham in Matthew 1.1. Why does Matthew start off his book with, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's pointing back to these promises made 
Jesus is the fulfillment of them. It's also why all believers are called children of Abraham in Galatians 3. Because to you, the blessing has come in Christ. The blessing promised to Abraham has come to you in Christ. Why is this? Because when man sinned, God chose to work through man to bring salvation. He chose to work through clay pots like us to fulfill his promise to save us and restore his kingdom. So he started with Adam and went directly through the line of Adam through Abraham. So I want to show you a chart. Nate, or do you have this up here to see what this looks like? See how this happened historically. God made a promise to Adam or to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that he would crush Satan, that man would be saved. That promise is to the whole world. It then became more specific with Abraham. I will make you a great nation. And from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but it starts to become more narrow. So he picks on Abraham's nation. Then in Genesis 49.10, he picks on Judah. Who's Judah now? Judah is the great-grandson of Abraham, right? You have Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, and Judah's one of his sons. And he says, not only is it the, this promise coming to the whole world, but it's coming through the nation that comes from Abraham, and it's coming from the tribe that comes from Judah. And then he says it's coming from the house of David in 2 Samuel 7. It gets even smaller. So it goes from world to nation to tribe to house, and then it comes down to man, one man, Jesus Christ. That's how you see the Old Testament unfold, coming to its fulfillment in Christ. As we understand how God has worked historically to save us, you can take that down now, David, if you want. Or in other words, as we understand the story of how God has brought about his kingdom in the sinful world, I want to see some of the primary effects of that. Some of the primary themes that come out in Genesis, there's two of them I want to focus on. So here they are. Two things I want you to see as themes in the book of Genesis that you can take and go, wow, that comes right to me. One, God's grace. The grace of God. God's grace probably is the clearest theme throughout the whole Bible. Now, some people contest is that the holiness of God is the grace of God. Look, I don't want to make a definitive statement. I lean toward the fact that the grace of God is the clearest theme through the Bible. And the reason I lean toward the fact that the grace of God is the clearest theme of the Bible is because in Romans nine, I'm told that God created us and endured with us after we sinned with much patience. So he could show the riches of his glory to the vessels of his mercy. Romans nine twenty three says that. He did it all to show those of us whom are receiving his mercy how glorious he is. In Ephesians 1, Paul picks up on that same theme and says that he did it all. Creation, redemption, salvation, sealing in the spirit, all to the praise of his glorious grace. He did it all. Now the theme of holiness and justice are certainly Prevalent throughout scripture because you need to understand that grace never looks more glorious than against the backdrop of holiness and justice. 
And so God created everything to show us how gracious he is. It's a theme of scripture. He wants his grace to be proclaimed. He wants us to know that he's gracious to us. We haven't earned it or merited it or there's no reason why we get it. Look, Steve is not going to get more grace because he went to Budapest. Now, he may get grace in the sense of sanctification and blessing through his life. He may get grace in the sense that he gets an eternal reward that is greater than the eternal reward I get. I have no idea. But all of that only happens because he's in Christ. In other words, none of our good works are accepted in and of themselves. They're only accepted in Christ. I'm going to give you nine examples, quick ones, nine quick ones from Genesis. Here they are. Here they are. Nine quick examples of God's grace in Genesis. Adam sins. First one, Adam sins. And God promises to save all mankind. And he's gracious to him. Second one, Cain kills Abel. And God actually puts the mark on Cain to protect him. So he doesn't get killed by the people. And then God provides Seth. For whom the promise could be fulfilled. Graciousness. Third. We become terribly wicked. Genesis chapter 6. But God redeems mankind through Noah. Fourth. After the flood. And the redemption we received in Noah. We became wicked again. Built a great city. And we're scattered. But then we get the promise. To Abraham, that all the nations will be blessed through him. God's graciousness. Fifth, Abraham. The grace God shows to Abraham is astounding. Although it says in Genesis 15, 6, and we often key in on this, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Have you guys heard of that? Why was Abraham's faith credited to him as righteousness? Is it because Abraham's faith was so incredible? Or is it because of the object in whom his faith was God? And see, we get mixed up on this. And we think that what it's about is how great is the faith of Abraham. Well, I don't doubt its sincerity. I believe Abraham's faith is sincere. It has nothing to do with the greatness of Abraham's faith. It has to do with the greatness of the object or the God in whom his faith is placed. That faith itself is even a gift of grace. Consider the following reasons. He's a man who lived among pagans and was likely one himself. And yet God graciously came to him. God didn't come to Abraham because Abraham all kinds of faith. God came to him and gave him faith. The focus is on God covenanting with Abraham, not Abraham going around looking for a covenant with God. Second, he's shown to be constantly sinning. Do you realize he receives this covenant and then he starts heading for the promised land and on his way, there's a famine. He has to go to Egypt. And so he takes his poor wife, Sarah, and he says, Sarah, when we get there, tell him you're my sister. And if Pharaoh, the king wants to take you as his wife and rape you, go right ahead. It will protect me. And so he sends her off for that possible outcome. Seems like a great guy, doesn't he? 
God protects Sarah. She obviously is protected from being raped by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so they leave. And um, they're not exercising much faith in God in regard to the fact that he'll give them a son for promise. And so Abraham has sex with another woman. Hagar. Great guy. And this, this, is the, this is the man that all the women I know are signing up to marry, right? And then, check it out. After all this, God gives them a son. After all that, I mean, they're 100 years old when they have a kid. So at this point, you're going, God must be real. He's come to me. He's protected my wife. He's been gracious to me no matter what kind of a sinner I am. We had a child when we were 100. She was already through menopause, the Bible says. And we had a child. And then he's going through, um, and he comes to the land of King Abimelech. And he says, Sarah, you know what? You're, even though you're old, you're still good looking. And it's a true story. You're still good looking. And that king is going to want you. So I don't want to be killed for you. So if he wants you, he can have you. And gives her up again. You think he learned his lesson the first time, but no. This is the guy whom it says in Genesis fifteen six, Abram believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. This isn't the story of some super righteous man. This is a story of a sinner who trusts the great God of the universe and who rebels at times and whom God graciously saves out of his own rebellion. It wasn't the power of his faith. It was the power of the God in whom his faith was that mattered. Abraham is a sinful man whom God is gracious to. Lot. They get to choose, right? Abraham and Lot are going along. They get to choose. We need to break up. We got too many cattle. We're too rich. Right? So let's, let's split. Lot says, that land over there looks great. I think I could get even more wealthy there. Knowing that that land over there is the land we know of as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an exceedingly wicked and sinful place. Lot goes there. God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy that place. And Abraham prays. And at the end of the day, Abraham says, Lord, please be gracious to my nephew. And he goes and gets Lot, and God is gracious to Lot, in spite of his sin. Isaac, the son of Abraham, he tried to give his wife away too, <laughs> to the Philistines. This is a problem, apparently, with the early Jewish men. Um, <laughs> Isaac decides, my son Abraham can go to the Philistines. I mean, my son, I'm sorry. Isaac, the son of Abraham, decides my wife can go to the Philistines. His wife was Rebecca. God protected her. Jacob, the chosen son, he doesn't do anything godly until like after he wrestles with God. But for the first part of his life, he's the most ungodly person maybe in the Bible. He's up there on the chart of people who are chosen by God, who are saved, who God's been gracious to. He is ungodly. Here's a guy who steals his own brother's blessing from his father. He lies and he cheats and he steals and he still gets blessed. 
He marries two different women. The first one he marries, he works for seven years to get her. Right? But her ends up being a woman he didn't expect. See, what happened is he went to his cousin, or I think it's a cousin, maybe an Uncle Laban's house. And he went there and looking for a wife, and he saw um, this girl named Rachel. And he said, that girl is beautiful. I want her. And so the father said, fine, you had to work seven years for her. And so he worked seven years. And the Bible says it was like but moments for him because of the love that he had for her. And so you're going, oh, what a great guy. He's working his tail off to get this woman. It's just but moments because of the deep love he has for her. And so he goes to the marriage bed that night. He's finally got her. He consummates. He wakes up in the, mar- in the morning, and it's her ugly sister <laughs> laying next to him. I'm not kidding. The Bible actually says that she was ugly. And she is laying next to him. That's true. It actually says that in the text. And she's laying next to him, and he is deeply disappointed deeply and so he says this is wrong what's funny about that by the way is that he double crossed his brother and now in some sense of divine justice he gets double crossed and so then he works seven more years for rachel so now he's put in 14 years and he finally gets her and then he's going to leave laban and laban makes this promise with him right and he breaks this thing he says you take half and i'll take half and so we know You know, God's going to watch out between me and you while we're absent from one another. Incidentally, that little saying that Laban makes with with um, Jacob is now being put on Christian Jesus junk. Right. And it's that verse from Genesis and you get half and you give half to your girlfriend, you know, and they get a little half of the little, you know, charm and you get half and you wear it and you have that little verse on there. That verse is a verse of distrust. Anyways, so no, so. <laughs> not as he have two different women, he has children through several different women, right? So not only does he sleep with his two wives, he goes and sleeps with their servants and has some more children. He commits theft. He steals from Laban in some way. This guy is squirmy. He's horrible. God makes his covenant with him. You know what's amazing about this guy, Jacob? Romans 9, Paul tells us this, quoting from the Old Testament, by the way. Before the twins were even born, Jacob and Esau, before they had done anything good or bad, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Wow. Jacob, I'm savingly gracious to, and Esau, I'm not. Why? Because Jacob was a great guy? Absolutely not. But God is gracious to him. God is gracious to him, and he continues the promise through him. Joseph had his brothers, right? You you know the story of Joseph. Joseph has 11 brothers. What do the brothers of Joseph do with him? They decide, let's kill him. And then his brother Benjamin speaks up, no, it would be wrong to kill him. Okay, let's throw him in a ditch and sell him into slavery. Yeah, that's okay. We'll let that one go, right? And so they sell their brother into slavery in Egypt. And you would think for that sin, God would come against those brothers. You know what they don't even know is that when they sell their brother into slavery in Egypt, 
God is ordaining that to save them. He's ordaining their sin to save them. Because he raises Joseph up in the kingdom of Egypt. And when a great famine comes on Israel, Joseph's brothers have to come to Egypt in order to get food so they can live. And Joseph is there providing it for them. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph tells them, in a sense, how gracious God is when he says this. Because they're thinking, aren't you going to kill us? Aren't you going to come against us? And Joseph says, you know what? You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God is gracious. This is our God. He's gracious to us in our sinfulness. That's why Paul can say that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Because God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life in our place and die on the cross and pay the penalty due to us because he's gracious. Say it, not because we're good. If you don't see that in Genesis, you're not reading Genesis. I don't know what you're reading, but it isn't that book. Because it's a book about the grace of God to sinful people. And those themes come through the whole Bible. Second, God sovereignly elects. God's grace is given to those who do nothing to merit it or earn it. He chooses to save some men from the mass of fallen humanity. God is gracious in a common way to all men. Common way to all men. But he only brings the hope of salvation to and through some. In other words, there's nothing in man that causes God to save him. You hear that? There's nothing in me or you that causes God to save us. It's not some foreseen faith. It isn't some virtue or certainty that one man will do good works when another will not. It's the sheer sovereign grace of God. If you don't believe that, look at the same people I just listed. God saved Adam and Eve when they rejected him, not when they believed. God saved Abel and not Cain. God saved Seth and not Cain. God graciously saves Seth's um, fifth son, Enoch, and not Cain's Lemex. Cain has Lemex, not Lemex's fifth son. Or Lemex, the fifth son, I'm sorry. God graciously saves Noah and his family and not the rest of mankind. Why? Noah was wicked? Noah gets off the ark after seeing the judgment of God and immediately gets drunk and naked. That isn't good. That doesn't say there's a righteous guy if I ever saw one. God graciously extends the promise through and saves Abraham. Not all the other pagans. Just that pagan. You hear that? That pagan. Not that great guy with all that faith. That sinner he saves. God graciously extends the promise through and saves Isaac and not Ishmael. He graciously extends the promise through and saves Jacob and not Esau. Jacob, of all people. (laughs) God graciously extends the promise through and saves Judah and not all Israel, which, by the way, you see carried out in the history of Israel. After Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. 
And Israel scattered, but Judah remains. I want to make a real quick distinction about God's graciousness and election. There's two kinds of election in the Bible. The first kind is the kind of election where God elects the nation of Israel. It's a physical election. He elects this physical group of people. Everyone from the seed of Abraham is a part of that elect group of people or that elect nation. However, there's a distinction between that kind of election and the election to salvation. God does not elect to salvation everyone who was physically a part of elect Israel. Does not. Romans chapter 9 says it very clearly when Paul's asking, what happened to the Jews? Why did they fall into sin? They had the covenants and the promises, and they had the Old Testament, and they had the sacrifice, they had everything. What happened? And Paul's response is, not all Israel is Israel. That sounds convoluted, doesn't it? His point is, not all national, physical, elect Israel is spiritually saved Israel. Not all the people that are a part of that physical kingdom I was building through them are a part of the spiritual kingdom that I'm ultimately building. So he makes a distinction. Here's the point. What's the point of all that? People who deny election, God's sovereign saving or choosing, flip the promise on its head. Flip the promise on its head. It becomes more about us working to keep the promise and not to lose the promise than it does about God being a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And that's what we should fear. When we get wrapped up with our own ability to make and keep promises with God, we are going to cower in fear for our salvation if we understand who he is. When we understand that the promises of God cannot be broken by sins that I commit, but the promises of God are as secure as his character is, then we have a true sense of what it means to be his people in his place under his rule and blessing. We have a security in him. We understand grace in a real way. He's an amazingly gracious God. He's good to you and he's good to me and none of us deserve it. He seeks and saves us even though we are wicked. He chose to save us when we chose to run the other way, didn't he? We all know it. If you don't know that, um, man, you need to reflect on who God is. You didn't go running to him. He came running after you. He's gracious. He chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. We simply have to look to him in faith and trust him and recognize that we don't deserve any of it. But he lavishes it on us promiscuously. Our God's grace is promiscuous. If you don't know him, um, Some of you in here probably don't probably do not know Jesus and his grace. 
He wants to lavish his grace on you. All you have to do is believe. That's it. Just receive his grace in Christ. And he'll give it to you. He wants to pour it out on you. So receive it. Turn and receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you that you are as gracious a God as you are, that you make promises and that you keep them, that our salvation is secure in you, that that theme is clear throughout Genesis, that no matter how many times we try to violate your promise, no matter how many times we try to get out of the marriage, you come running after us and rescue us back. You redeem us, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that your son does not act with his bride as so many of us do with ours. That he will never forsake his bride. Lord, that he will cleanse her from all unrighteousness. We're thankful for that. We trust in you for it. We love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful that you sent Jesus for us. In Jesus' name, amen.